Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore. Joined as always by my co-host, Kyle Halson. And I want to thank everybody for listening. And you've probably subscribed to the podcast. Please do if you have not. And uh, give us an iTunes rating, five stars, uh, pretty please. Um, share the podcast <laughs> is a great way to help the podcast out. Um, it's probably the best way to help the podcast out. So if you like what you're hearing, uh, share it with a friend. And uh, also, if you would like to support the podcast with a couple bucks for either a coffee, because we're not caffeinated enough, um, you can do so at EmpiricalCycling.com slash donate. Sorry, what was that, Kyle? Oh, I see. Yeah, I need to feel like I'm vibrating, you know, all the time. <laughs> Just constant, constant vibrating. Yeah, the retina rattlers. Um, uh, we'll have show notes up on the website. Uh, we may or may not have a link or two. Um, and for any and all coaching and consultation inquiries, questions, and comments, you can email me directly at EmpiricalCycling at gmail.com. And the question that a lot of people will probably be asking right now about that is, do you just do strength training programs? And I used to, but I no longer do because, uh, frankly, I'm just too busy. So I'd rather have a full-time athlete. Oh, yeah. No, because I, I really don't want to write um, – I really don't want to write generic plans, personally. On one hand, it would be nice because uh, it's a, a passive source of income, but um, I would rather uh, work more and you know get new assistant coaches and you know get more clients to them personally. Uh, so that way, you know, I think that we could uphold the standard I have for empirical cycling better that way. But uh, that's just me. <laughs> I know not everybody uh, wants to operate that way. But um, anyway, so speaking of individualizing things, when you go to the gym, Kyle, how do yes. you individualize? Well, I coach you. So how do I individualize <laughs> your uh, your training program? How would you advise people? Because people ask you a lot of lifting stuff too, because you've been lifting even longer than me. So what do you normally advise them? Well, I first tend to ask them what they actually want or make, tell them to think about what they actually want out of lifting. Like people think, oh, I got to lift. Or maybe they think, I, oh, I, I feel like I should lift, but I have no idea why I'm going to lift. And you're like, well, you probably should want to have goals identified as to why you're doing something. Just like if you're going to do FTP efforts, you want to know why you're doing them. Yeah. But with lifting, because it, looks very much not like bike racing. It's way less clear for a lot of people initially why they're doing this. And maybe they know why they're doing this. Like I had a friend recently who was like, oh, I, I realized that like now I'm getting to the point where I'm I'm lasting and, and breakaways and then I'm losing. <laughs> so I want to be able to sprint more because you're getting to the end there and going, oh no, <laughs> you know, oh no. I, so I, I maybe they've identified that goal, which is, which is a good a good uh, start to say, oh, okay, so I wanna I wanna be able to sprint better, sprint more, sprint faster, whatever, what have you, um, and then from there you kind of uh, extract, you work backwards. Or what was what was Dan Bigham's book? Start from the end. Oh, start or at what, the end. Yeah, I've got it on my shelf. Yeah. I just ordered it. I have yet to crack it open. Yeah, something like that. Kind of kind of a similar thing. And I I have not read his book either, but. Likewise, like I just said, if your end goal is don't lose a breakaway sprint <laughs> in a road race, okay, so you need more sprint power, and then you, you work from there. Yeah, and you know, if you start at the end for winning a breakaway sprint, actually the first thing you should probably think about is – can I last in this breakaway or can I even get in it in the first place? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so like instead of like starting at the last step, you know, being like, oh, okay, so I need to work on my sprint – Take a step back. Um, this is actually one of the things that I 
I deal with with a lot of clients actually is um, just as as an aside is they're like, man, I'm really gassed at the end of this race. I don't have a sprint. Can we work on my sprint? And it's like, the solution is not the sprint at that point. The solution is getting to the end of the race with a full tank of gas or as much as you have, or as much as you can have as possible. So usually that just ends up being more aerobic training. And then at some point it's like, okay, yeah, like you are feeling really good. You've got your sprint and now, or you've got your aerobic engine, you can get to the sprint and now you're losing because you don't have enough Watts. You know, that is a very different story. So sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. that's where like, you know, GoPro footage comes in and, you know, like analyzing the last two or three, four laps before a sprint, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I think most people probably go into the gym thinking they should squat. And I would usually agree with this. Um, so, all right. So let's go over squat stuffs because we're going to, you know, nominally the topic today is exercise selection. Um, but you know, it's a, it's us. So <laughs> we're going to do what we can. Um, <laughs> so back squat, high bar, low bar, front squat. Um, where, where do you normally recommend people begin with this? So typically the first thing is, is do people have an experience, any experience with doing one or the other? And if they have experience with doing something and no experience with the other one, unless they had a terrible time and are like, no, 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 I, I know I cannot do back squat, like low bar back squat for some reason. Like, okay, well, and then, then maybe skip it. Um, but typically for people, especially for athletes who aren't competing in Olympic weightlifting or powerlifting or strongman or something like that, the variation you pick, in my opinion, kind of doesn't matter, provided that you're able to do it safely and not just, you know, get stapled all the time. (laughs) Um, But I think people obsess a lot about, oh, am I high bar or low bar back squatting? Especially if they're new to it and you go online and you see people saying, oh, low bar is good for, you know, more posterior chain or high bar is for weightlifters only or whatever. And you're like, well, not only is high bar and low bar not like a, a... dichotomy there's like a a gradient of positions where you can put the bar it it doesn't maybe doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah this is where i would say individualization starts is you know if i look at somebody's squat technique and i think that um you know, they are lacking this, that, or the other thing, like a shoulder mobility or ankle mobility or hip mobility. Um, like if it's impingement or like, you know, you're kind of going to the side, you know, first of all, like getting a real trainer and or a PT to evaluate you is a really big start. Um, so if you have any issues doing anything, like get to a professional ASAP. Um, but, you know, then I would say, yeah, like high bar, low bar back squat. Um, like I do low bar myself because I'm not that mobile. And also my uh, anatomy, like the length of my, you know, legs, you know, joints and femurs and whatnot, um, you know, put me in a better position for a low bar. So that's just what I do. And it's easier for me to get to full depth. Um, high bar, I have tried. Uh, you actually have to rest the bar in your delts. Delts, not delts, traps. Um, I don't really have any traps. And <laughs> when asked yeah. to tense them, to flex them. I don't know how. 
Um, and you know, like if I'm like doing shrugs, obviously I can, but it's like I don't. I don't it's not comfortable. So I, I <laughs> the bar doesn't feel good there, um, and so I just don't do them. And furthermore, I don't have the mobility to do them because it puts my torso more upright. Then my my knees have to go more forward, and I don't have that kind of ankle mobility. So, you know, that's where I'm at with that. Um, front squat. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I think, I think that's exactly right. Like some people you'll find they, uh, yeah, because of anatomy and obviously the sport you pick, like powerlifting tends to select genetics wise for people who are going to be good at low bar squat because you can lift heavier absolute loads that way generally. And like Olympic weightlifting, because you have to catch a clean or a snatch in a very upright position that's very very much like high bar it selects for people whose anatomy fits in that and cycling doesn't do either <laughs> like <laughs> cycling is just like uh, i don't know i don't know um so yeah whichever one feels more comfortable and allows you to 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 get work in safely is the best one not to mention if you know one over the other especially if you're just going to you've always done high bar say, and you're wondering, Oh, is it worth, worth the time to like learn to do low bar? Like probably not because squatting is not your sport. And so all of that time you'd spend like relearning a different, slightly different squat pattern and having to drop the weight down, blah, blah, blah. Like if it, if you don't have a good reason to, to change, there's not a, you don't have to. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, yeah. And a lot of it's just that, you know, cyclists, we don't have a lot of time in the gym. Like, well, Kyle and I are in the gym all year, but most cyclists are not in the gym all year long. And, you know, if you're going to learn a new technique, like something complex, like a snatch or a clean, you know, this is going to be a big time investment to get it right and to not get injured and to eventually get up to loads that you're going to have to they're going to, you know, need to use to, for the exercise to be useful instead of like just the bar for three or four or five, six months. Um, and you know, you mean my PVC pipe cleans aren't getting me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually speaking of which, I think people are probably wondering right now, like, you know, should I do cleans or like plyos or something like that? So let's put explosive stuff on the list for, uh, you know, a couple minutes from now. Um, All right. but I wanted to get to front squat also. So one of the things I think to think about is that between low bar, high bar, and front squat is that the torso gets more and more and more upright while you make these variations. And so as this happens, like if you're, this pushes your your hips a little more forward uh, because the bar needs to stay over your midfoot to be balanced. And so as this happens, your knees go a little further out over your toes. And you can kind of counteract some of this by like doing, you know, wider variations and whatnot. But, um, you know, for the most part, it does require a good deal of mobility, right? Yeah. And, and you'll see this if you pull up a picture of an Olympic weightlifter, either catching a clean in the bottom position or doing a front squat, like their knees will go way far over their toes because, there's literally no way for you to get your body in unless, unless you have the world's shortest femurs where your femurs are, are like your femurs and like tibia and fibia are so short that you can like bend your way all the way down there and, 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 um, you know, not have your knees go over your toes, but your knees have to go over your toes in order to do that. And so if you don't have the ankle mobility, like the, the, the dorsiflexion to be able to smash 
your upper the upper part of your foot toward your shin <laughs> you're going to have a bad time and, and your heels are actually going to lift off the ground and you're going to be unstable and you're going to fall forward or you're going to fall backward or something like that yeah and that's why a lot of lifting shoes have a big uh heel to toe drop uh like my my shoes um i just got powerlifting shoes again and they've got like a i don't know it's like three quarter inch between the two and like when you put them yeah. on you know you feel like you're wearing heels well, you are wearing heels. <laughs> I know, but it's like, like I was like, oh my god, is this what is this what people put on their feet for, like, you know, with an evening gown or something? It's like this isn't it. it it's way more than a three quarters of an inch, though. Yeah, it's weird because I I feel so normal walking in a cycling cleat. <laughs> like yeah. I could legit run in a cycling cleat, and I've done it. Uh, like I remember I was running a track session and two people crashed while they were, uh, doing a, a practice race against each other. They just, they just decided to, you know, occupy the same space at the same time as they crossed the line. And so I like ran from where I was standing down onto the track and, and like after everybody was cleared that they were okay, like everybody was like, wow, you could run on those things. <laughs> so, um, and I feel much less comfortable in the lifting shoes, but it's just, it's been a while. So, um, so yeah, lifting shoes can be, help for ankle mobility to like achieve more depth, but it's not like a cure-all for like lacking mobility. Like you can see if, um, you know, you should still obviously work on fixing your movement patterns without the heel lift, but at some point it becomes necessary equipment. Uh, like if you're a weightlifter and whatnot, cause I don't think there's no weightlifters that like go out and Chuck Taylors, right? The only example I can think of is, um, Toshiki Yamamoto, who is a men's 96 kilogram weightlifter from Japan will snatch in a CrossFit shoe because, of a I, people people don't exactly know why but people s surmise it is because of a history of shoulder injuries and it makes it easier for him and he's got ridiculous mobility so that he doesn't need the heel to hit the bottom position of a snatch uh, keep in mind he's snatching like you know 170 kilos oh um <laughs> but he doesn't need the extra heel lift and it like allows him to have a better torso and shoulder position where he's less prone to get injuries. But then he'll literally switch shoes and come out and do clean and jerks in regular like Nike weightlifting shoes or whatever. Okay, yeah. Um, and so that's one of those things where if you're going to think about doing this for yourself, like, you know, it's this is one of those big personalization things, obviously. Um, yeah. And, and Chuck Taylors are a really common suggestion when people first look at how am I going to, you know, go to the gym? What, what equipment do I need? Um, people will say Chuck Taylor's and those are great. And it, and there's nothing wrong with doing them. And people lift plenty of heavy weights. Like I'm sure people have, there are people out there who've probably squatted like 800 pounds in Chuck Taylor's. It's not like <laughs> a problem. Yeah. Like no wraps, uh, no belt. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, there, I mean, there's a video of, uh, like, uh, Chad Wesley Smith doing like a deadlift in like boat, like an 800 pound deadlift in boat shoes or something <laughs> ridiculous, you know, like whatever it doesn't. I remember an Instagram video. Some dude like goes to like do a five or 600 pound squat. He's wearing flip flops and he's had no warm up, and he gets down to the bottom of his squat and his, uh, his foot slips. 
Oh God. <laughs> and, and he lands on the safety arms and he's okay, but like oh. barely. <laughs> um, yeah. Sweating a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Um, and actually like a good shoe, like Chuck Taylors are made for, um, skateboarding. And so they're made to have a lot of grip on a very smooth surface. Like I had been squatting in my regular sneakers, which is a, it's fine. Um, but I was like, I really got to get the, <laughs> the extra stuff and, um, the extra lifts just to, you know, get a little more depth and blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I noticed when I went in today with my proper lifting shoes that I had a lot more grip on the ground. Like in my regular sneakers, if I had to like adjust my position a little bit, you know, just lift, slide, and it's fine. Um, I did the same pattern today in my lifting shoes and my foot went nowhere. <laughs> I was like, nah. oh, wow, I'm so much more stable. This is great. Um, so that kind of thing, like a, like the grip on the ground that you have is super, super, super helpful to like feeling really stable and confident in your squat. So, yeah, that's true. Also why you don't see like carpet in gyms or something, right? Like, Oh yeah. Oh God, never. Um, yeah. If, if your gym has carpet under the squat rack, find a different gym, please. Um, Although your gym may be in your home, in fact, <laughs> living room. Gym. Yeah. In which case you may want a heavy neoprene mat or something like that. Um, excuse me. Um, so what's another reason you might want to choose one of these exercises over the other? Like, so shoulder mobility, I think we kind of touched on for low, high front squat, like front squat, you do need a lot of shoulder mobility to like long lats to really get your arm, elbows up. But also you can do the, you can do the cross arm thing for it. And you can also get straps like Kyle, you do the straps for your front squats, right? Yeah. So I, I try hard to do you know, quote unquote, proper front squats and have my hands underneath in a, a, like a front rack position, like a, uh, like a weightlifter. But when I'm tired or when I'm just too tight and if from, you know, be it just life or, you know, having done something else, I will put straps around the bar, not around my hands, but so that you could, so that they're sticking up from the bar, kind of like levers or something. And so you can grab them and it takes a little bit of stress off your elbows and wrists when you are trying to do that kind of more traditional front squat position. Um, but oh, oh, yeah, and so, of, oh, what, so what, a also I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering like, what does a lifting strap look like? So it's a, um, it's a loop and it's uh, sewn at one end, and then there's a long tail. So it almost looks like a noose, um, but um, it doesn't slide anywhere. So so through that um, through that noose end, you actually put the other end of the strap, the long tail, through it, and that um, and then you hold on to the long tail. So that just it, so it, it puts a lot of um, a lot of uh, friction on it, and that's how it stays there. It's not like knotted or anything. Yeah. Yeah, and we can link to pictures of this. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I have I've never used it, but they sell this like strange looking, almost like a. It's like a weird, f front mounted like vest almost, where it's supposed to make it easier for you to like keep a front squat secure where it's got, it's basically got like pegs sticking out of it. So you can kind of, and it's like two shoulder straps that they're metal and they're like welded together and you, you can put it on yourself and then put a, a barbell on there to try to keep it on you more stably 
Um, but that's probably fairly uncommon unless your gym has one. Like most people don't own one of those. That sounds like one of those giant suits that Ripley was in in Aliens, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, actually, um, I think what you're kind of touching on, what the suit kind of gets to is like a front squat actually requires a ton of ab strength and endurance. Like, yes. Like doing a lot and of front back. squats. Yeah, upper back too. Like my upper back gets really tired doing front squats. Um, especially if it's like the last lift of the day. It's, yeah, you, you could be pretty tired for that kind of stuff. But one of the reasons you may want a front squat is you cannot put a weight on your back. I know several people whose main lift is a front squat. And if that's you, then it may be worth it to you know work on the mobility and work on the strength to front squat comfortably and like get that lift fairly heavy. And it's also because your torso is a little more upright. It actually is a lot more quad-focused um, as an exercise. So if that's something that you want to work on, then uh, a front squat is actually one of the better quad dominant exercises that you can do that's closed chain. Cause like Kyle, you're missing a PCL. And so like, you can't do open chain exercises like, you know, knee extensions or like sissy squats or anything like that. So um, yeah. 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 So it's, it's a good exercise for somebody like you for sure. Yeah. I will say the other thing too, is that, um, generally just working with lighter loads is going to be less risky should should you have any weird back concerns uh you know like if you have to like even if you even if you're at the sort of elite elite olympic weightlifting powerlifting level your front squat max is only going to be like 80 to 85 percent of your back squat max so you automatically get to bump a few pounds off and it just it may actually even be less mentally taxing if as well if you can use slightly slightly lower loads because you don't need as much like whole body intensity to support such heavy loads on your back for example yeah that's true and that's um actually that's one of the things i think makes squatting with a belt easier like when you get to heavy heavy loads uh, putting a belt on like and there's no by the way there's no minimum load at which you need or don't need a belt. Uh, this is a very personal decision. I've got people I coach who are squatting less than 200 pounds who need a belt. And I've got people I coach who can squat into the 400 pounds who need a belt sometimes and don't others. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's a little personal, but when you throw a belt on, finally, um, the requirements, uh, like the mental requirements to like keep your core stable, uh, when you get to the bottom of a squat, it goes down quite a bit. You still have to really brace hard. It, it's not like it, it doesn't make up for it's not like free. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make up for core strength, but it increases intra abdominal pressure, which stabilizes the spine. Um, Google that, like, you know, uh, belts, uh, squat belt, and squat university or something like that. And uh, Aaron Horshey has a, a lot of really good resources on that. So, um, yeah. Anyway, and as well with belts, some people think like, "Oh, your your abs are going to get less strong, or something like that." Um, and generally, because the belt allows you to typically lift higher loads than you would without a belt, the consensus is that your abs will work equally as hard, but because you are more stable when you are lifting heavier loads, you are doing the same amount of work effectively, right? Like you're, yeah. you're, 
if your abs are a little bit looser because you're not wearing a belt, you're not going to be able to lift as much weight, even though your abs are still trying 100%. And then if you put a belt on and your abs are still trying 100%, well, you're able, you're more stable and you're able to output a little bit more force, but it's not making your abs weaker if you use a belt. Yeah. And I know um, one of my friends does some CrossFit and um, I, I posted on Instagram once about, you know, wearing a belt and she was like, well, you should never wear a belt because it means you haven't earned the weight. And it's like, uh, <laughs> that's, um, that, that's an interesting philosophy. And we had, we had a very frank discussion, uh, an exchange of ideas, uh, following that. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, I, I would say that is, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it is personal preference. First order, it's personal preference, personal comfort. Second order is, yes, I know people who will put on belts very early because they have, have a history of back problems or a family history of back problems or whatever. And so, um, you know, a belt doesn't prevent back problems, nor does it prevent back injuries, but it might be that cue that you need or that little bit of extra uh, insurance that you need. Yeah, something to push against. Uh, like I, and also like, uh, well, this is one of the things that I tell people with bracing. Uh, it's like if you're listening, you can do this right now, if, as long as you're not driving or anything. So um, stand up and just hinge at your hips. Just bend over at your waist. Keep your try to like, you know, just kind of keep your knees locked. Don't squat or anything. Just kind of just bend over, and then take a giant breath, what's called the Valsalva maneuver, also known as you are uh, forcing a giant shit out. Um, <laughs> and so uh, hold your breath really hard and like tighten your back and your abs and then hinge again. And you're going to feel a difference in the stability of your torso. And that's kind of what we're getting at here. Yeah. I would say the other thing is that the torso like this this kind of gets into like back angle neutral back rounded spine um yes you should always aim for a quote-unquote neutral spine but that for most people does not mean that you will be able to keep like the exact same like board stiff spinal position or torso position the entire lift like lots of research indicates that neutral is kind of a range just kind of like everything else we've said before <laughs> yeah. um but obviously don't do not lift with your back uh <laughs> you can watch all those like hilarious videos of, of people just doing terrible looking squats like looking like a dog like bending over taking a shit or whatever don't do that <laughs> but if you if you there are degrees to which you should be worried about your back rounding and being hyper hyper concerned that your back moves just a little bit is probably not a concern now if your butt swings all the way under your hips and you like yeah, look yeah you, like and you round your lower back with during yeah. what's called butt wink um yeah and according that's to some problem. yeah and according to a lot of pts by the way there is some butt wink that's benign and there is some butt wink that's malignant so you get checked by a professional <laughs> for, your, <laughs> for your butt wink <laughs> yeah um, and note that even if you have great mobility, like I, I can squat all the way down, back squat, high bar with, um, with, uh, with your hamstrings on your calves, like hamstrings touching my calves. And if I go totally unweighted and just let myself relax all the way down without a bar, my lower back will round a little bit underneath my hips, but that's without a bar. Like 
without when I actually have a bar and I'm squatting, I stop a little bit above that absolute lowest like complete position where your your butt totally rounds underneath. Yeah, and it's funny because I think um, I think one of the things I've noticed while coaching people to squat, especially in person, is once we kind of get into a certain range of weight, um, their technique actually gets better. It's like you need a little bit of load to balance. Otherwise, there's nothing, there's no proprioceptive, is that the right word for balance? Um, <laughs> whatever the word is, like there's, there's nothing to balance, there's nothing to focus on. So like if you shift your center of gravity a little more forward or a little farther back, like it's not going to be that bad, like with just a bar versus like with, you know, let's say a hundred pounds, you know? So like having a hundred pounds in your back, now you've got something to balance and this will, you know, force you to go, oh, this way is too, too forward. I feel it in my lower back. This way is too far back. I've got to like, you know, push my quads forward or whatever. Like, it, you know, there's a whole, um, a whole bunch of stuff that, um, where was I going with that, Kyle? <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff that's individualized or personalized about your squat. Like you won't be able to fit into a like a cookie cutter squat, like we mentioned this last time, but like <laughs> yeah. Joel Seedman, everyone squats exactly the same. Like turns out, no, like everyone does not squat exactly the same. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're, we were kind of, um, well, we kind of got sidetracked on squats, but I think that's going to be good listening. So, um, so when it comes to exercise selection, obviously, so squats, very, very good place to start. Um, and I think if you have not done any strength training ever, or you have um, only done strength training intermittently, um, a, a good squat a lot of the time is going to be like 60 to 70% of what you need in a strength training program for just about any goal, whether it's health or improving your sprint or, um, you know, what what else is there? Looking good. Um, so <laughs> yeah, just a, a mental break from having to slog away miles in the trainer in yeah. the winter when it's snowing. Yeah, yeah. Because I think one of the things that um, that uh, you know I hate saying the word settled science, but it let, let's say it seems to be um, well regarded. Uh, until proven otherwise, sort of like a theory of gravity. It's like a quote unquote theory, but like. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, it's a theory, sure. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, where initially, when you start to do any kind of strength training exercise, neurally, this is one of the things that improves the most earliest. So being able to recruit more muscle mass and being able to you know, find those little muscles that you haven't used before and, you know, figuring out how to turn on your quads more or, you know, use your hips better or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, early on, it's not entirely all neural gains. Like it's, you know, you do start to build some sarcomeres and some contractile tissue and you get a little sarcoplasmic expansion and the whole yada yada. Um, but, you know, early on, a good squat is really going to take you a long, long way. Like when I started strength training to improve my sprint, I think the squat, like the, just improvements in squats improved my sprint for about six to eight months or something like that before I had to like yeah. start, you know, thinking deeper about, oh, how now how do I do this? You know? 
Yeah. And, and that's just, it's akin to when you started riding your bike and you'd never had to do any interval training and just riding your bike for funsies with your friends made you better at every aspect of riding your bike. You could just do coffee shop ride after coffee shop ride and you would get dropped less and less or whatever on your Wednesday night worlds. And this is pretty similar to when you just start squatting or just start lifting weights or if you're returning from a long hiatus of lifting. Yeah. Um, And so, okay, so after your normal you know, gains level out, or let's say you've been getting into the gym a couple, uh, for a couple of years, and now you're comfortable squatting, maybe even like a year, you know, a couple months, you're comfortable squatting, but you notice that let's say you're trying to improve your sprint, your sprint's not improving anymore. So, um, I always recommend also doing a unilateral exercise. So that would be like a single leg squat, single leg press, um, rear leg elevated split squat, also known as Bulgarian squat. Um, really any kind of variation therein is going to be really, really good for you to work in, um, as like a second exercise. Um, uh, what, what other unilateral stuff do we have? Lunges, um, split squats, um, help. There's like, uh, box step ups. You can, that's one. If you have a, if you, you can do that with dumbbells or a barbell or nothing, but probably nothing, just your own body weight is not sufficient to do for <laughs> resistance training on step ups. But if you can find like a, a stable box, emphasis on stable, 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 stable box, not like a rolling chair or something, oh, you God. can do. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can do that or, um, yeah, like, any number of lunge variations. I guess you said lunges, but there are, are a number of lunge variations that fall yeah. into there. Actually, I would recommend, personally, I would recommend against uh, box step-ups. Um, like, I could probably do a box step-up with well over 200 pounds, and um, there's no fucking way that I'm going to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> being on one leg while elevating yourself onto a whatever-inch box... Uh, that does not sound appealing to me because if you bobble it, um, well, yeah, you do this with safety. So, you know, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not <laughs> recommending you do this. Oh, you know, in, in an open field <laughs> with, with nothing around you. Like Honestly, definitely take, on, you would on Instagram. When I see people do this, um, I see them doing it with no safety whatsoever. Um, which scares me by the way. Um, so if you have done that, uh, and I follow you on Instagram, I have seen it and I have been scared and wondering if I DM you about it, about the injury risk therein, um, does that qualify as mansplaining? Um, they they just have better insurance, even other men. Sorry. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. Um, so anyway, so let's, um, yeah. So like when it comes to programming with exercise selection, Um, I would actually say, try to pick like two to three things to focus on for like a two to three month phase. And if you're lifting longer than that, then you're going to want some exercise variation. But for the most part, that's going to get most people most of the way to where they want to be. Um, yeah. And you're, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. And, and if any of you have done any sort of, you know, maybe traditional bro splits or like bodybuilding training, this is maybe going to sound like not enough exercises, but keep in mind, you're not going to be lifting four days a week trying to do, you know, push, pull legs 
you know, abs and biceps and calves, you know, like you are in there twice a week, probably not three times a week if you have other riding to do. So yeah. you don't need to have this laundry list of different exercises to do. And it's probably easier for you to track progress and remember what you did last time if it's only a handful and not 10 different exercises that you keep rotating through. Yeah. And as somebody who's done 10 different exercises, um, don't it's it's exhausting <laughs> <laughs> like um i remember when i yeah when i started getting into the gym and i was like i'm gonna lift all the things um i would go home so beyond exhausted um and you know the last couple lifts like they were all getting pretty dicey in terms of like balance and technique because i was tired and that's not the right way to go about it so like your first exercise is always going to be your best and your strongest in terms of technique and after that, you want to make sure that the injury risk is going down with the increasing fatigue. So if you're gonna do, um, so if you're gonna do like let's say, um, you know, heavy back squat followed by single leg press. So we'll talk about presses in a second. Um, f- maybe like really late in the phase, you'll add a third exercise. You'll be like uh, maybe sissy squats or something like that. Um, you like the weight is going to go down for each one of these things. Like you'll see that, you know, how, like, what would you be doing for sissy squats? Like for a load, like maybe a hundred pounds, like just grab dumbbells, two fifty pound dumbbells. Like instead of having a bar on your back, you know, like that would be the way I would approach it. I would also say, remember that what you think you could hit for like three sets of five, when you're as an example for when you're fresh is not what you're going to be able to hit for three sets of five after you've already done a hard exercise. Like your ego might be like, oh, I can do this. It'll be great. And then you'll get three reps into that second set and be like, I don't know if I'm going (laughs) to survive. (laughs) So this is where being honest with yourself and admitting that like fatigue, feeling fatigued is fine. Like your muscles don't know that you're lifting slightly less weight. (laughs) All they know is that you're telling them to work hard. Like, and that they're close, they're getting closer and closer to failure and they're accumulating more fatigue. Like the exact poundage, like if you go to a gym regularly and you know the machine, say that how the leg press, how to load it, and then you go to a different gym and you're like, oh, I don't know how much weight, like, oh, am I going to look like a wimp because I put less weight on this leg press, but it felt hard? Like, well, no, if it still feels about as hard, like that's what's important. It's not. Yeah, nobody nobody pounds. judges each other in the gym except today I felt a little judged because I was squatting 225 on one leg. Um and people get give you some looks when you're doing that kind of stuff. Um but <laughs> for, but like for example, um last week I did an easy week and I uh, against my better judgment, uh I did it anyway. Uh, I did a one rep max uh single leg squat test. Nice. And I yeah. did 275 despite the fact that I was exhausted from doing pause squats, like long five second pauses with, uh, yeah, I did a bunch of them. And then I was like, my legs were a little shaky and I was like, YOLO, let's do some single leg squats. Um, cause the gym was mostly empty, but there were a couple people in there and man, did they look at me. <laughs> so, uh, I was, I was judged there. Um, although I felt it was in a positive way, like, wow, look what that person can do. But you know, if I had been just squatting, like, you know, the bar, literally nobody would have looked at me at all for any reason whatsoever, other than maybe I had a cool shirt on or something. Um, 
but yeah, the, like the load doesn't matter. And so, uh, so anyway, so, oh, the reason I brought that up, um, it was not to brag, even though it is a cool brag, I think. Um, I brought that up because like, so about, um, you know, 80% of a one rep max, you should be able to like do what? Six rep max, something like that. Seven, maybe. Yeah. 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 85 is typically like five. So 80 is going to be in that six, seven ish range. Yeah. And so I did sets of three because I was so tired from my main sets of squats, like a three, like I could have done like a four rep max and it would have been dicey. So let's call it a three. Like I could do my three like over and over and it was like a nine, nine and a half RPE. Um, yeah, <laughs> but like you're tired. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking, okay, like if I'm feeling good, I'll be able to rep this for like four or five and like, feel like it's about an eight, eight and a half and like, nope, <laughs> I was tired. Um, so I was, um, so I was just doing less reps, um, at the same weight and I added more sets and that was one of the ways that I was like, okay, this is going to be good strength training for me. But, um, you know, the other way to do it would have been to take some weight off the bar, but I'm lazy. So I didn't, uh, <laughs> I just did more sets, which was actually more fatiguing. Um, I, I should have like gone down to like two Oh five and done sets of five. Um, but anyway, so do as I say, not as I do. Um, so I mentioned press in there a little bit. So one of the cool things that we can do with, um, leg strength training is, um, I, I kind of like presses and like hack squat machines and all this kind of variation stuff like belt squats because it actually takes the balance a little bit more out of the equation. Even the Smith machine can be really useful for this kind of stuff. I know a lot of people hate on Smith machine and I'm kind of one of them sometimes, but it can be really useful. So if you have really, really zero ankle mobility, like a hack squat or a leg press or a Smith machine can actually be a lifesaver for strength training because you no longer have to worry about balancing the load because the load is on a defined track already and you can put your feet wherever you want underneath that load or or you know to guide that load so like you can have your feet way out in front of you on a smith machine and when you have to go up like you're also got you've got a force vector going back if you're back squatting but like you can put your feet way out in front of you relative to where you would be in a squat and like that's going to be safe and effective right yeah yeah and if you actually want um rp strength has a pretty good video on how to actually do smith machine squats correctly because and it does take a little bit more of a bodybuilding approach but the technique pointers are still good yeah um because like you said taking the balance out of it if you're a bodybuilder and you're just trying to get just a oodles and oodles of volume in <laughs> yeah. it's much easier to do them on a leg press or a hack squat or a smith machine than just trying to like ronnie coleman your way through uh 800 pound squats all the time the and, th- and there's a reason why ronnie coleman <laughs> is all beat up now in his old age and that's because he did Lightweight. a lot of dumb stuff yeah lightweight baby <laughs> Yeah, like it's the best. maybe don't like everyone loves those videos like Ronnie Coleman like leg pressing like twenty five hundred pounds or but don't do that just, just <laughs> yes. don't. Yeah, he's the goat for a reason, uh, and also a boatload of steroids. Um, yeah. um, so so being smart and and knowing that if your body isn't happy doing something, don't do it. You know, don't force yourself to do an exercise because everyone on Instagram is doing it. Yeah, 
Yeah, and this is one of the things where, uh, by the way, a consultation would be great because I can help you. Well, I'm not going to, you know, assess your range of motion and stuff like that, but I, I can help you put together like, oh, you can do this, you can't do this. Like, if you come to me with a list of things you can and cannot do, I can help you put together a program with a consultation. Um, I'm not going to program it for you, yeah. but we can kind of go through, you know, main phases and loading guidelines and whatnot. So, um, also, speaking of, um, <laughs> this is a good time to plug an article. Um, if you, uh, I actually wrote an article I was invited to by, um, by a friend of mine, uh, Dana Kotler. Uh, thank you, Dana. Uh, it is for the uh, it is for the physical medicine and rehabilitation clinics of North America. So this is a medical journal, and there's an issue on cycling uh, rehab. And I did um, kind of a primer article on you know modern cycling metrics for physicians, but that was only as a premise to get doctors reading or um, learning more about how modern cyclists quantify their training. And it was a jumping off point to talk about how um, physicians and coaches and athletes need to communicate in order to better um, serve uh, cyclists who are coming back from injury and illness. So like a set, like a lot of the athletes I've had who have had injuries um, you know, there's a little bit of communication between me and them and the doctor saying, what exercises can this person do? What can they not do? Uh, what's the right way to, um, load? How long, how light can they go? How, he how hard can they go? Uh, like what's the progression kind of stuff. So these are things that, uh, I got from doctors and the, uh, the athletes had to spend some time explaining to doctors, like wh what's happening, why, when, how much are you riding? You're riding how many miles? What? No hours. Okay. How many hours? Wow. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I have an author's link, uh, so this is going to be valid only until 9th of December, 2021. It's going to be free full text. Uh, then it goes behind a paywall for a, a year, I think. And then it's going to be uh, full text again. So um, head over to empiricalcycling.com slash podcast dash episodes and, uh, you know, get to uh, the notes and this link will be there. So um, I hope it's useful. Uh, I'm actually going to have Dana on the podcast to discuss it. And she also, uh, wrote some stuff for that issue, which I'm really looking forward to reading. And we're going to discuss that, um, when, uh, when she comes on. So that's going to be awesome. But anyway, and, so if, and she is actually that type of doctor, not unlike me, yes. I'm not that <laughs> doctor. <laughs> she is a, she is a, a legit medical doctor. I have gone to her, uh, for some of my injuries and she has been really excellent. And she actually runs, um, with uh, with another person, the Spalding Cycling Medicine Clinic uh, in Newton, Mass. Um, so she's fantastic, and I've gone to a couple of her talks and talks with like Greg Robodeau, and they're they're great. Um, so uh, check that out. Check out that whole issue uh, if you can. If you have a if your you know university or employer has a subscription, uh, check out whatever's uh, free to check out. Um, and anyway, so um, the reason I brought all that up is because um, if you have issues with range of motion or if you have injuries, like you've got a torn something or other, um, or you've got a permanent issue with like something in your back and you cannot do any back loading, like this is a good thing for, you know, to say, you know, 
say to your coach or say to your doctor, what can I and can I not do? What should I be doing? And then, you know, the list of wants from the coach versus the list of cans and cannots from the doctor can come together and form something very nice in the middle. Injury is going to be one of those things that um, can really restrict your uh, exercise selection. So again, I'm going to emphasize as emphatically as possible, talk to your doctor because your coach is not a doctor. I am not a doctor. Um, getting to see a PT who knows cycling or, and or lifting and stuff like that is going to be fantastic. Um, yeah. So, and also being honest with these people, like yes. if you, if you're paying them or your insurances or both. And so if you're doing something and you don't, understand why or you don't think this is the right thing just ask like they're not hopefully not going to say i can't tell you it's a secret or something <laughs> like that like having an engaged patient is usually a positive thing and especially when it's something like pt where you have this expectation of a return to competition or a return to training or what have you being upfront about that and say i want to get back to this point you know do you think this is realistic time frame, things like that? Like, don't just be like, oh, well, this is what the PT said. Well, why did they say that? I don't know. Like, yeah, having, having some back and forth with your PT or doctor, um, uh, you know, between, um, visits can be really, really excellent. So, um, you know, I, I and I know a lot of them are very busy and it can be hard to get a hold of, um, but actually, uh, I know a regular podcast listener who is a PT uh, who may have some interesting thoughts on all this kind of stuff. So uh, I'll talk to him about coming on the program too. So, um, oh, so one of the things that I think would be cool to touch on here to finish up with would be the bilateral deficit. Oh, uh, it's your favorite. It is my favorite. Every time you brag about single leg squats, you're trying <laughs> to just show off. Um. Well, okay, so let's let's put the bilateral deficit in pers into perspective. Um, this is a cool brain thing that I really like. Normally, you might expect what you can do on one leg for a basically identical motion um, is half of what you can do on two. So if you can squat 100 pounds on one leg, you could probably squat 200 pounds on two. And this actually turns out to be uh, wrong a lot of the time, especially with cyclists and people who do a lot of stuff on one leg. If you're a bilateral athlete, like a power lifter or a w Olympic weightlifter, um, this is one of those things that is going to be irrelevant to you uh, for obvious reasons. But for cyclists, uh, after your kind of, um, you know, initial strength gains have tapped out with bilateral stuff, unilateral stuff is really the only place you have to go. Because um, I think I, did I mention this in the last podcast? I feel like I did. Um, where I had spent a lot of time working on my, getting my squat better, my two-leg squat, and it didn't help my sprint. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so this is one of those things where the bilateral deficit is because you can spend more brain power on one leg then you can spend it on two together like there's less load in terms of neural uh neural load i suppose we could say I, or that's the theory anyway um and so you can spend the rest of that or like you know 60 or 70 percent of it or whatever um we'll go to one leg um so kyle uh what's your approximate one leg versus two leg squat 
Um, I have one leg squatted. I want to say three twenty-five. That's kind of a lot. And I have two legs squatted four forty. <laughs> So that um, is so you can that's a lot. <laughs> you can one leg squat seventy four percent of what you can do on two. Yeah, and and like uh, yeah, I mean, and, and and even and it even gets it's it's and it holds both for maxes and for reps in my experience. Like I can do sets of five to six with like two sixty five on one leg squat, and I can't do sets of five to i can't do any two leg squats <laughs> of over 500 pounds so um yeah it's it is it is a kind of weird it's kind of weird phenomenon and you kind of get used to it but i think it also definitely gets gets me some weird looks at the gym sometimes yeah i i told you about some of the looks i got earlier and um yeah exactly because i have the about the same bilateral deficit that you do it's about 70, 75%. Um, it's where my one leg is versus my two leg. So my one leg, one rep max, 275. My two leg is approximately 365 right now. Um, maybe a little higher, but probably not by much. So, um, and that's because Kyle and I do this kind of stuff all year round. <laughs> so, um, so our bilateral uh, deficit is probably about as high as one could reasonably make it. Um, and one of the things that I noticed while I was doing experiments on myself is that like when I was entirely focused on single leg strength, uh, it tapped out after a little while. Like I was repping, I think 240, 45 pounds on one leg and I was not really working on my two leg squat and it just stopped. I could not get stronger. Um, and I was like, man, what is with this? And I, I had to think about it for a little bit, but that's what it was, is my bilateral deficit. Like, I hadn't done any two-leg squat strength stuff. And so it was just kind of the same that it had been for the last, like, I don't know, month or whatever, and, or two. And, um, yeah, I just tapped out. It's sort of like FTP becoming a higher uh, percentage of VO2 max. And at a certain point, it just stops. Uh, and getting it higher and higher over years... Um, you know, can be a very, very slow and, you know, agonizingly small process because a lot of the time when you do that kind of thing, um, you know, the improvements you see are like barely outside the margin of error of a power meter or they can be. So um, yeah. this is one of those things where, you know, it can be difficult to assess also because, you know, was that really a 9.5? Was that really a one rep max? Was that really a three rep max? Like, did you have a little bit more in you? Was that like, um, you know, Kyle, I think you can elaborate a little more on this. Yeah. And I think as well, it is the sort of thing that when you are doing a sport, that's actually going to most sports, like most sports only occurs on one leg. Um, you probably have some latent, uh, bilateral deficit already, like you touched on mm -hmm. and doing more of your sport may actually just make that even more apparent. Um, but then you're really hammering it on in the in the gym when you start doing one leg exercises. Um, but obviously what this might lead you to think is like, oh man, should I be doing like high rep one leg squats or something? Because that's like <laughs> even closer to like pedaling a bike. And the answer is definitely no. Do not go and do 
hundred rep one leg squats or pistols or something like that. Please yeah. don't. Or like um, quarter squats because that's the range of motion that you have on a bike or whatever it is. It's like right. I, right. This is one of my favorite. Um, one of my favorite uh, metaphors um, is, and I didn't even hear it from. I didn't even hear it from anything cycling related. I heard it from some uh, strength and conditioning coach. Um, you know, I think it, actually it might have been Jump. What's that? Jump University or Jump something? Um, yeah, I can't think of the name. Yeah, uh, it might have been that. Um, so I think that person was saying, um, you know, if you want to do strength and conditioning for basketball players and you want them to jump higher, it's going to be very rare that you go make them go do more jumping because that's what they do on the court for hours a day. Um, instead, you know, you're going to just have them get stronger, like have them lift. Um, you know, because we'll talk about the, uh, you know, the force velocity curve uh, another time. Um, but, you know, that's what you want to do. And so it's like when you do cycling specific stuff in the gym that's like extremely cycling specific it's like why don't you just go ride a bike yeah yeah and somewhere somewhere in that like specific range is like this cutoff of like doing one doing unilateral versus bilateral exercises okay that's getting you a little bit closer but there's definitely this cutoff where yeah if you want to do better get really better at bike stuff you ride a bike and obviously lifting is not really looking like a bike, but splitting that, excuse me, splitting that, those exercises up into both single leg and double leg exercises yeah. is probably pretty useful as well as just like with your lower body, you can think about doing that for your upper body as well. So you do some rows or something like that, because that's kind of like riding a bike. And if you're also thinking about sprinting, yes, you generally kind of use your upper body in a more isometric fashion, but rarely, except for standing starts, are you going to be pulling with both arms at the same time or engaging both arms um, equally as hard. Yeah. Although there are, this is very much an aside, although there are um, some uh, interesting um, studies out there showing that if you think about engaging your lats and actually instead of pulling on the bars up and down, you actually think about pushing the bars left and right, that can actually add uh, quite a bit of power output. Yeah, I think there's, and this could be a whole other episode about like sprint on the bike sprint technique. There's um, there's little things that I think sometimes people who are like just natural sprinters maybe kind of figured out on their own, and then other people are like, ah, oh, why is my sprint always goofy and <laughs> and feels a little awkward? And you just like tweak at things here and there. Yeah, and well, it's like a neural learning thing, right? Like you're getting used to those firing patterns and what needs to be tense and what needs to do what, like. I like I think um like the first time I ever sprinted on a bike when I had a power meter I think I barely broke a thousand watts and I was really going for it. Um and then over the next couple years like 3 4 5 years I added about 100 watts to my sprint every year and I wasn't doing any strength training. I was just, you know, working my day job as a carpenter and just racing and riding and that was it. And just through that that got my sprint better from neural patterning. And that's one of the things that may or may not be a limiter for a lot of people out there listening. Like, oh, should I get into the gym? It's like, if you get into the gym, also think about making your um, 
you know, doing more specific movements. Uh, so like doing big gear sprints or small gear sprints can actually help you embed better uh, motor patterns into yourself when you want to make big power. And you don't want to do it everything in every single, um, you know, in a sprint session. You don't want to do like, I'm going to do 10 big gear sprints, then I'm going to do 10 small gear <laughs> sprints, uh, then I'm going to do 10 max power sprints. Oh my God, my power hasn't gone up. <laughs> yeah. Your power actually starts to tank at the end of doing that because you just did 30 quote unquote maximal sprints. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think there's something to be said for that. Like, like we said earlier, getting into the gym for a lot of people will likely see their sprint power just start to go up and up and up. And then eventually it won't keep going up and up and up. <laughs> yeah. And the answer is not, you know, 300 pound squat, good 600 pound squat better necessarily. <laughs> it may be if you, especially if you've been lifting for a while, it may be some of these other things as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, we'll, uh, we'll kind of talk about that as we go with this, uh, with the series. Cause I think, um, you know, we've gotten some good feedback on these episodes, um, or well on the first last, the last episode, of, uh, you know, just kind of talking like this and kind of rambling about, you know, strength training type stuff. So, um, Hey Jamie, pull up that picture of those aliens faking the moon landing <laughs> for me, will you? Oh yeah. The, uh, that's a Joe Rogan reference. I believe <laughs> I have not, listened, I haven't listened to Joe Rogan in like over a year or more. Um, yeah, his, his like production assistant or whoever, Oh, his, yeah. oh, his yeah. name is Jamie, yeah. and he always has like got a projector or whatever, and they always pull up <laughs> dumb shit. Um, yeah, we don't have that. We don't have video. We have faces for radio, and it's going to stay that way. So, um, yeah, all right. You subscribe so, to our OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> OnlyFans for quads, just quads. I, Only femurs. <laughs> Only femurs. <laughs> All right. All right. I think that's our clue to kind of bring this ship in for a landing. Um, so thanks everybody for listening again, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Oh, also I forgot to mention in the intro, but YOLO, um, on Instagram, uh, weekend AMAs in the story. So at empirical cycling, if you want to check that out, um, I'm always asking about training and I've been uh, in the habit of doing it a little bit during the week too, when I need a distraction between sets. Um, so why not more screen time on Instagram? So, uh, watch out for those during the week, uh, Mondays, Tuesdays, uh, Thursdays, Fridays are usually my usual lifting days. So check those out. Um, uh, give us an iTunes rating of five stars, pretty please, and uh, share the podcast if you liked it uh, with a friend. Uh, link it. Um, you know, it's free. We're ad free. Uh, we are never going to be advertising Manscaped. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> Unless, although we don't really compete with them, so that's you know, true. That, that if, po- with the podcast in question, if so they, if they if they uh, if they pay us enough, maybe um, we'll talk about it. Manscaped, get at me. The email is empiricalcycling at gmail.com for any coaching and consultation inquiries, questions, comments. You can email me there. Uh, donate to the show empiricalcycling.com slash donate we have the show notes up on the website Uh, we'll link to the article I mentioned and um, I guess that will be that so I will see everybody uh, in the next episode hopefully next week hey this was closer to 10 minutes than the last one 